motorcycle, belly dancer, dune buggy, helicopter, a dated Sabina, and I am a Coca-Cola bottle. These words might sound illogical together, but they're very much related as they're all titles of films from the mid-1950s made by the cinematographer Morton Helig, who developed the Sensorama. Sensorama was an arcade-style theater cabinet. The viewer sat down in front of a cabinet-like machine, put his head forward to a stereoscopic 3D display, and on top of that, Sensorama featured fans, speakers, smell generators, the chair was vibrating. Virtual reality has a long history. Its applications precede pure fun, and by today, many therapies for medical purposes have been designed. And this is today's topic of the Faces of Digital Health podcast with me, Tiasha Zaitz, as its host. Virtual reality has many medical applications. I spoke to two experts on the topic. Dr. Albert Skip Rizzo, the Director of Medical Virtual Reality at the Institute for Creative Technologies at University of Southern Carolina, and Dr. Walter Greenleaf, the Medical Director for Applied VR at Stanford University. Since both discussions were very interesting, I'm publishing them separately. So today you will hear from Dr. Rizzo, who by the way was the best man at Dr. Greenleaf's wedding. Both experts have been in the VR research space for more than 20 years, but today we're going to start with Dr. Rizzo and simple questions such as the differences between virtual and augmented reality, applications of VR in ADHD, PTSD, and how does that affect our brain patterns. A very practical question for the beginning. Um, if you're wearing glasses, how do you then put on the HoloLens? Is, uh, does it interfere with the, with the perception? Uh, you know, with with virtual reality, these headsets are made now, so there's enough space in there that you can wear your own optical glasses. Uh, so that's okay. Now with HoloLens, there's not that much space in there, um, and and the same thing with some of the other head-mounted uh, augmented reality glasses that are out there. It, it's an issue. Um, I, I don't know if there's a, a easy solution until we get to the point where augmented reality glasses are like your regular glasses that you're wearing anyway, prescription lenses, but then have the functionality of the augmentation that's possible. One technical um, question. I think it's fair to kind of distinguish what's the difference between um, augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, the simul- the big simulators, you know, that uh, simulate, for example, the movement of the chair when mm. when a plane is uh, landing. The the two things that you should juxtapose is virtual reality and augmented reality. And very basically, virtual reality, you're creating the whole simulation. You put on a headset, you're Included from the physical world and you're in whatever simulation has been created 360 by 360. Whereas with augmented reality, typically you're wearing see-through lenses. So you're seeing the real world, but you're pasting into the real world computer graphics. Like say I have a virtual person walk in and they're walking in from over there and coming by. I'll see them as if they're walking here. Like Pokemon Go is a classic example, but with a, a tablet or a phone, when you wear the headset, I think there's a little bit more power in that because you're 
interacting in the in the real world like you would normally interact, but you've got this added information that can pop up strategically, whether it's interacting with a virtual human or information about the assembly of an aircraft motor or um, decorating. I think IKEA is doing this now for decorating your home, where you can have you do use a tablet in this case, and you can select a uh, a piece of furniture and look at what it would look like in that in your space, you know, or a lamp or whatever. So virtual reality is not that new. You've been in the space yeah. of research for the last 20 years. So what are the, the new things that we are seeing in the last few years? What is the new research um, when it comes to clinical use? You know, I think what's happened is that a lot of the ideas were thought of in the 90s, but it wasn't so practical to instantiate them or to create uh, all the simulations that were needed or the quality or the diversity of the simulations needed. Now that's all changed. Um, and the equipment, you know, what, what I can pay $400 for right now in a head-mounted display would have cost me $20,000 back in 2012. So the... the the availability of low-cost equipment has now made it more feasible for this to come into common clinical practice. So it's no longer you have to invest a lot of money. For example, that virtual classroom that I presented, that was designed as a commercial product by a test publisher that I worked with um, on. And it was great. Everybody loved it. They, they produce great data, but when people found out, well, would you be willing to pay $8,000 for a computer and a headset to run it? All of a sudden, everybody was like, well, maybe I don't need it so bad. And it failed as a product, became a research tool. Now we can deliver that in a, in a mobile phone-enabled VR headset and, get, and do it even better than we could back in 2003. So I think the, the technology catching up with the vision of clinical VR has occurred. Now the novel ideas, the, uh, I was just talked to somebody, uh, a second ago saying, well, you know, you're talking about pain distraction. What about childbirth pain? And I thought to myself, geez, how the, how the hell did I not think of that one? That would be a good one if you could address it. Or people are doing things with, um, helping people with depression by doing body transfer in VR where, you know, you, they take a depressed person who's self-critical and teach them how to console a child in a virtual environment. And then after they do it and they do it well, then they switch it up and all of a sudden that person is occupying the body of the child being consoled by a model of themselves. And that for some reason has a strong clinical effect in helping people to be more self, um, supportive, if you will, because depressed people often are hypercritical and everything is biased to the negative. So I, I see those kinds of things happening. I see better research with larger sample sizes happening. So, you know, we're, we, we haven't, every once in a while, a new idea pops up. But people have been thinking about this for the last 20 years. So we've got a lot of ideas that were formed early on, but not fully developed or fully tested or fully evolved. We can do that now. And that's where we're going with it. And many um, behavioral and psychological um the uh, issues are addressed with uh, virtual reality. So maybe which one is the strongest one in terms of uh, the clinical application? And most of all, um, how does it differ from the exposure therapy? Well, 
I think. I, I guess it, what I'm trying to ask is, um, what uh, what's the biggest expectation from virtual reality? Lower price or affordability of therapy? I think affordability of therapy is one important issue, um, but you still got to pay for the therapist's time. So, if you can get better care faster using VR, then there's a cost savings there. If you can go into it expecting to do better because here's this cool piece of equipment and it's intuitively appealing to you, maybe you'll see better outcomes. Maybe the placebo effect will enhance the actual treatment outcome uh, because you're expecting to get better. Um, you know, I think that probably um, the cost reduction, and th th this is the case I tried to make here in my talk, was that the combination of the informed theory driving the development of these applications um, in VR, ways to amplify and extend what we already know works in the real world. Then the research, which is now continuously documenting where VR adds value, where it might not add value, how we can enhance or improve the effects with, with new research. That's already happening. And the third element really is the pragmatics. What's the cost? How hard is it to get the simulations or how hard is it to do therapy with with vr um and th that's all coming down i mean those prices i mean it's already there people spend so an, uh, an md will spend more money on a on a on a, a stethoscope a good stethoscope than what a vr headset costs now uh, so what's the danger of consumers uh, trying out these kind of therapies themselves because as you mentioned there's a lot of apps already on the market and on the other hand the therapist is the one that needs to guide the therapy i have a very strong belief at this point that we have to err on the side of being ethically conservative about how this treatment is delivered because it is an emotionally evocative and very powerful experiential technology that we love to say VR can leverage those, those, those assets, if you will, um, for good. But if you accept that, you've got to accept that, you know, people may misdiagnose themselves or they may pick the wrong treatment to self-treat that these psychological health conditions are as important in terms of well-being as physical and so you've got to treat them with the same level of respect and respect the expertise that's needed to do a proper diagnosis and to develop a proper treatment plan and implement and supervise that treatment plan now i think we may get to a point where where clinicians can supervise treatment using VR where they maybe you see less of the patient and they're doing more independently, but the treatment is still being supervised and monitored by an expert, by a well-trained clinician. And I think that's that's the, the, the side we have to err on now until we know better. You know, maybe, you know, some controlled trials where people can self-treat. Self-diagnosis is always going to be a problem, though, because, you know, it, 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 it takes many years to understand the nature of mental health conditions, and you don't get it from watching TV or talking to your neighbor. When we're starting to think about caution with this therapy, you immediately run into regulation and, you know, FDA approvals and recommendations. So what does that mean in terms of um, adoption? Of this technology on a wider basis and and reimbursement. That well, that's the that's the big issue, um, you know, in healthcare reimbursement and who's going to pay for it. 
who's going to make money on it, which I, I don't think is such a good thing in America where, you know, healthcare is a commodity and it, I don't think it should be. I think it should be available to all and it's a societal, a shared societal uh, cost. Um, but, you know, to get FDA approval for some of these applications will ensure that a hospital or doctor can get reimbursed. However, not in all cases, like with exposure therapy, we have a device, yes, a VR headset that can help deliver exposure therapy using VR, but you're still doing meat and potatoes exposure therapy, and that's a reimbursable thing, whether you do it with your voice or you do it with a VR simulation. So I don't, I think those, those types of conditions will still be reimbursed whether you use VR or not. Um, I think it's some of the more exotic conditions, like maybe for kids with learning disabilities or elderly people with Alzheimer's, if people want to try to pursue that by developing methods to help preserve cognitive function by training in VR, then you're going to get into a little bit more. I mean, look, at everybody complains about regulations, but there there is a reason. You know, you're dealing with people's health. And so you have a, a responsibility that sometimes when there's a profit motive, that responsibility goes out the window. So the FDA exists for that. One question from a, a neuroscientific uh, point of view. What exactly happens in the brain when somebody is under uh, a VR therapy or it can also be a game? We can only speculate until we can actually do the proper kinds of fMRI studies where you can monitor uh, these activities. People have done it with EEG, with, you know, mega lead uh, EEG to record brainwave, uh, brain activity. Um, we do know that uh, people that go through treatment for PTSD, they do the exposure therapy. When you assess their brain activation before and after treatment, you see changes in key brain area activation levels in the direction that you would want to see or expect to see, like the amygdala, the fight or flight area of the brain. You see less activation when people are in a magnet and they're viewing stimuli relevant to their trauma. Um, you see less activation post-treatment. So it's not that quick fight or flight thing. So we know that there are changes in the brain. The, the, the research I talked about with pain distraction, where you see less activation in key areas for pain perception when people are in getting experimentally induced pain to study the process, you can see that. Now, studying what happens during therapy, that's EEG. Uh, you're not going to do that in a magnet, in an fMRI, so you're not going to have that high resolution of what is going on in the brain. PTSD specifically um, is being treated on many different ways. So one is the behavioral therapy, one is now the VR. Uh, one area that, that is also opening up uh, in the last few years is uh, psilocybin and uh, psychoactive substances. Yep, sure. So how can you compare those methods if there's no studies on the brain functions done when it comes to VR? Well, well, so, so, I mean, let's face it, with the pharmacological approach, which I actually think there's some merit to, um, with you know, psilocybin or, you know, ecstasy or some of the other drugs used, LSD, um, yeah, that's an inside out process. You're taking a medication and it's affecting the brain activity in a certain way that produces a phenomenological experience of reality that may be healing or helpful under certain conditions with good guidance. Uh, with VR, it's on the outside in. You're 
controlling the outside stimuli to affect a change in behavior or in the brain. And, you know, th there have been studies with EEG showing, you know, perhaps that kids with ADD, when they're in the virtual classroom, they show less coherent activation in the brain, focused on attention, less frontal um, activation, um, and that it can improve over time. But, you know, it's a tall order to get a good, clean, high-resolution assessment of what's going on in the brain, even though we like to think, oh, EEG captures it or fMRI. fMRI, you're going to be on your back and you got to have your head fixed. Um, that's on a natural position for a lot of the things that we want to call upon people to do in VR. So it's a tall order. It's going to take a lot more research. People are doing MEG, M-E-G. Uh, it's a type of EEG. That is supposed to be really super high resolution. Or people are doing the near infrared spectroscopy, you know, in the frontal lobes up here, shining light and looking at reflectance based on blood flow in the, you know, the outer cortex. That's, that, that's something that you can measure while you're doing VR. The only problem is it only goes in a few columns into the, past the skull into the brain. You're not going to get any, any limbic system activity or basal ganglia or anything like that. You're, you're getting outer cortex, but that may be useful and meaningful. How long did uh, the therapy sessions last uh, in the research that, that you did so far on PTSD? So how long did somebody have to undergo this therapy? It's a standard protocol of 10 sessions and the sessions last about an hour and a half because, you know, you start off the session catching up with the patient, how to go this week and talking about what the, what's going on in their life. Then, all right, let's go to the VR and you do yeah, 30, 40 minutes in the VR revisit, excuse me, revisiting, uh, and confronting and processing difficult situations that you've gone through in the simulation and talking about it and working with the therapist. And then the final bit of time, which might be a half hour or maybe a little less, a little more, um, is the therapist helping the patient to reprocess the memory and to talk about it outside of the VR. And is this actually a long-term effect? So far, the data shows in the studies that, that, that go out as far as one year, you do see uh, the effect preserved. Um, people stay better. In fact, once they get to a certain point in the therapy where they're, they're, they've made some real progress, then they start doing more things in the real world at the end of therapy that further exposes them to things they've been avoiding, emotional situations, being in crowds of people and so on. And they continue to get better. I mean, that's typically what you find. You see a little bit more of an improvement. Now, um, the thing you got to keep in mind, people say, well, what about five years? Did it fix people out five or 10 years? And it's like, well, you know, life isn't static. You know, somebody might get over their PTSD from their combat-related experience, and they're good for a year or two. But then they get mugged or they have a sexual assault. Maybe, you know, past people believe that past um, PTSD and past trauma is predictive of later uh, development of the of the condition, um, and you hear this a lot with uh, early childhood trauma. 
you know, losing a parent at an early age or seeing your parent get killed or you know, seeing your parent get injured or you getting injured as a child or getting, a, you know, cancer as a child. Or So in, in those cases, what would be the application of VR? Let's say an adult comes in with a problem from childhood. So what exactly does the VR do? What's the... What's well, the sorry. So, say, sorry, say your your childhood trauma was you had a babysitter that sexually assaulted you. Um, maybe you would recreate a home environment. Maybe you'd have the perp or a kid that looked, you know, virtual character that looked like the kid. Um, you would have the person go into that environment under different conditions and talk about what they remember and what they think about. But it's very difficult stuff because. You want to make sure that you're not feeding a false memory. You know, you're not creating a false memory. That was a big issue. Uh, it came up about 20 years ago um, in some types of therapy. So you have to be careful. I think there's probably a more minimal role for VR when it comes to going back to those remote types of trauma. Um, but it's worth studying. I mean, maybe you can build out 20 different home environments that are changeable, change the color of the wallpaper or the size of the room or the lighting in the room, a lot, a lot of other things. I don't, I'm, I don't advocate um, virtualizing all elements of therapy where it matters and where it's doable, where it's well matched to the needs of the clinical application. Yeah, let's go for it. But Maybe this is one that isn't the, the area that you want to dig into. One application that I found especially interesting was ADD or ADHD. Mm-hmm. How do you apply VR to that? Well, um, our work has thus far been primarily focused on assessing uh, the child to find out, do they really, in fact, do have ADHD? Do they have an attention problem? Uh, what are the conditions under which the attention fails? You know, is it under distracting conditions or under completely quiet conditions and the kid is distracted by the quiet? Um, I mean, so we can measure that quite well in a controlled stimulus environment like what virtual reality can provide. Um, now, the treatment of it, now that goes back to what is your theory about how you improve attention if you were God and you could control the physics of the real world, what would you do to improve that? Well, some people say practice, uh, practice in a game environment, practice in a high-paced environment, uh, systematically add distractions and look at eye movement when kids are in the classroom and maybe try to train eye movement. There's a, a woman um, at, at UC uh, University of California, Davis, um, Julie Switzer, who I'm working with, who's got a, uh, National Institute of Health grant to actually do that. We're in the lab in a Vive headset with eye tracking. They're tracking how a kid interacts in a virtual classroom and tracking their eye movements and then taking that understanding of their eye movement, their distractibility and building in the environment to take home the gear VR or daydream VR mobile phone enabled headset taking it home where they can have a game to practice to help them stay focused towards the center of the, the classroom rather than resisting the the distractions going on out the window or with the kids around you so you know really it's it's not rocket science in that area it's like trying to help people become more self-aware of what challenges them and giving them practice to practice doing it right and, and have some incentive, you know, some motivation to do it. You know, I want to get more points or I want to win the game or whatever. 
I think uh, there's going to probably be a lot of products uh, also for anxiety and relaxation, mm -hmm. uh, the problems that are applicable to a larger population of people. However, one thing that it did pop to my mind was, um, for example, when it comes to relaxation, what happens to creativity? If you're like looking in a VR set, you know, and going through a, a meadow instead of closing your eyes and trying to, to imagine it. Yourself. Yeah, yeah, through a guided meditation. Uh, you know, I, I, I get your point there and I actually agree with it. And, you know, are we making it so that people do end up having underdeveloped imaginal senses to create a imagination because we're spoon feeding them. Here, here's where the value might come in. The value of training meditation in an idyllic or whatever virtual environment may be the first step towards getting someone to even try it because they don't, probably the people that need it the most are the ones that will never try it anyway because they're the nature of their personality. It's like, I'm not going to sit here and close my eyes and imagine one word or imagine a happy place. I, who the hell is going to do that? Same thing with the chronic pain folks. They don't have the patience or the nature of their personality is such that they're not going to do that kind of um, therapy or that they're not going to engage long enough in that type of learning to help calm themselves. Whereas maybe you can do it in VR and it becomes fun and it becomes like you're going somewhere and you get engaged and you learn the process and you start to see some of the benefits in doing it in VR. And then maybe, maybe you, these folks will be more apt to do it when they don't have their VR headset handy. How far do you think we are from VR that's going to look more realistic? You know, now uh, all the scenes are still very graphic. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I'm just guessing that maybe that's where the perception of maybe uh, bigger safety comes in compared to the direct Could exposional um, Could therapy. Be. Could be. Um, but I'll tell you, I mean, people with phobias, when you put them in a VR environment, even if they are not so graphically great, they react to them as if it's a real thing. I think, you know, you have two things going on in your brain. You've got the frontal lobes that are telling you that I am not on a plank walking out from a skyscraper. I am on a solid floor here. Um, but your amygdala is reacting to the perceptual phenomenon that it's seeing and reacting to that threat that it's highly tuned to react to. You know, I mean, really, the fight or flight, that's like about what are the perceptual stimuli in, in the world that, that pose a threat and mobilize for action. So that goes off in spite of the fact you know consciously you're on a solid floor so um you know i i think that um um when you when you add it all up we can fool the brain with less provocative graphics but we are of course getting better you saw the comparison between virtual rack you know 10 years ago and where it's at now fundamentally different maybe by making it look more real you'll get better buy-in that patients will say, wow, this is just like the real thing. Holy crap. And maybe that'll make it so they're more engaged in their therapy. It's hard to, hard to say. I mean, this is, these are the research questions. I mean, what I didn't get to say in my talk is that now we're at a point where we've got the, the basic elements down that we know exposure works we know distraction works in vr we know we can motivate people we can measure their performance we can engage them. we know we can do that now we got to figure out well how do we do it better 
We've got to do the dismantling studies. Do we need a smell machine to add smell into the uh, virtual Afghanistan space, or can we get along without it? Does it add value? Um, is it the graphic fidelity that matters, or can you do it with South Park characters? Um, you know, so dismantling studies to get at the ingredients of the process are needed and to maybe understand the process better. But then the second thing is we got to understand the, the population, the patients. Um, some people are going to be fine doing imaginal exposure therapy. They don't need VR. You know, traditional prolonged exposure is going to work great for them. Some people it doesn't work for. But it, but VR does. We've had a number of cases like that. They've gone for a full course of therapy in the traditional format with no benefit. Then they try VR and their life changes. So picking out the individual nature of people and being able to predict who's going to benefit from what treatment so you can make more informed therapeutic recommendations. So that's the it's research. just like expanding the yeah. um, number of available therapies. Yeah. Um, what are you optimistic about when it comes to VR and what uh, do you think about the, the negative predictions, you know, the black mirror kind yeah, of? Uh, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, well, you know, it's always a double-edged sword, you know. Uh, you know, automobiles get us around, but they also run over people. Um, you know, it's the same thing with VR. Um, what I'm excited about is uh, I'm excited about AI and building virtual humans that have some level of AI that we can have credible interactions with for good training or for healthcare access purposes or, or a wide variety of ways that we can use virtual humans. But there may be a certain segment of the population that will prefer to have AI friends than real people. Is that a good or a bad thing? Uh, would these people have really good relationships with real people to begin with? Are they going to shun the human race? Are we going to be so consumed in our technology uh, that we're going to lose our humanity for interaction with real people? I mean, you know, people already say this about mobile phones, you know. Uh, you know, it's classic when you look at the cross-generation. You see parent people in probably my generation more so but complain about kids with their their nose in the phone all the time and you know well although when it comes to vr some people do report that after let's say after socializing in the virtual space um, because you already have connections where you can interact with real people but when you get back into the real world you can feel even worse um than you did before you entered the mm -hmm. vr space it's like uh uh, it's like an adverse drug reaction, you know, mm -hmm. that can also happen. I yeah, guess. yeah. Well, I wonder if that, that also happens when people play video games or watch TV or engage in other media activities. I mean, we've always said the same thing. You know, even when, when books were being mass produced with the advent of the printing press, there were actually people writing about how books were going to destroy man, that people weren't going to live their lives, you know, in the real world. They were going to live in a book with their nose buried in a book, you know, and it was viewed as a distraction from real life, you know. But certainly now when we look back on it, books are, are, have been an indispensable tool for disseminating and passing on knowledge. Um, same thing, let's move up to the 20. 20th century, comic books, graphic novels, those were in the 50s. People were saying there's going to rot kids' brains. Same thing with television, too much television, uh, movies, violence in movies. All these media things get the blame for things that maybe we need to look in other directions. You know, maybe we, I don't, I don't think you can censor this kind of media, even though you may want to 
proscribe against extreme use of it or the development of certain types of simulations like the violent simulations that I was talking about. Maybe you'd want to keep that out of the hands of kids, you know, um, or, um, you know, what's going to happen when one day, um, somebody makes up a, a virtual pedophile simulation where a person can go in, like there's already virtual porn now. I wonder if they build one that has little kids being the objects in that, um, legally people can because it's it's not photographic content it's not the real kid no kids were harmed in creation of it and the supreme court already ruled on this with computer graphic renditions of children undressed you, you, it's not against the law to have them some people might say it's art you know, whatever but so that will happen somebody will build that environment and some people will use it now some people will say well maybe if they have it in vr they won't do it in the real world or maybe by doing it in vr makes you want to do it in the real world more these are the questions and challenges in this exciting time we have ahead uh, i hope i live long enough to see a lot of this a lot of these things and, and successful resolution of of these things i hope humanity rises to a higher calling when it comes to building out some of this stuff. We're definitely not going to run out of challenges. No, no, it's it's going to be the most interesting of times ahead. <laughs> this was the 10th episode of Faces of Digital Health. And here is a teaser for the next episode with Dr. Greenleaf from Stanford University. We're right now about 50 meters away from the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And at that lab, some of the research has shown the power of using the, an avatar of your future self to shift behavior. What we've done is we've taken um, uh, students, in this case, and we've put them in a virtual environment where they meet their future self. We've scanned in their face, and we mapped it to a virtual avatar, and we aid progressed it. And it changes your behavior to see your future self. And the same principle has been applied to weight management, to... Um, how to uh, drug abuse and addictions uh, you know and again we're leveraging the mirror neuron systems of the brain stay tuned and if you subscribe to the podcast you will automatically be notified when the next episode is published and if you like what you're listening please take some time to rate the podcast in itunes leave a review so other people will have an easier time finding the content thank you